Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The Premier of Alberta joins us, Jason Kenney. Mr. Premier, thank you very much for the time. How are you? Fine, thanks, Roy. Good to be back on your program. Yeah, let's. Uh, I, there are things I wanted to ask you, and I will ask you uh, in this interview that uh, aren't necessarily related to what's going on in this country today. But let's start with that. How do you? And you've seen a lot. You've seen um, discourse and, and challenges in Canada. All we have to think of is October thirtieth, nineteen ninety-five. Hundred thousand people at Dominion Square in Montreal. Uh, how do you evaluate? How do you uh, assess and describe what's going on in this country today? Well, Roy, as I say, there's always going to be strong disagreements in a democracy, and understandably so at a time like this, after two years of people's lives being turned upside down by COVID and uh, negatively affected by damaging public health restrictions. So I can understand that um, for a lot of people, after two years, um, the frustration's reaching a boiling point. And at the same time, uh, we are a democracy. That means we have to resolve those differences peacefully and lawfully. I strongly encourage people who are passionate about uh, government's response to COVID and all these related issues to go out and uh, say their piece peacefully, lawfully, without disrupting the lives of others, without creating public safety hazards, without uh, breaking the law. And uh, I've said to many of these protesters, uh, I hear them. And in fact, I agree with many, many of the points being raised. Alberta has been outspoken in our opposition to the uh, vaccine requirement for international truckers. I don't think it makes any meaningful public health benefit, and it just makes a bad situation worse for our supply chains, food inflation. I went down to Washington to meet with top U.S. leaders to urge them to help us lift the or restore an exemption on both sides of the border. I've said that we would fight, if necessary, in court against a federal um, imposition in, in of a vaccine mandate for domestic uh, interprovincial truckers here in Canada. And we've indicated that uh, uh, we've been indicating for a long time our intention to move forward in relaxing public health measures, including our proof of vaccination program, as soon as it's safe to do so. And that will be imminent. Now, Premier, talk to us about that, please, because one of the most fundamental points that is raised on a regular basis has been raised today is the fatigue with the vaccine mandates uh, generally and with the restrictions brought on by COVID. You have said that you will be issuing, I believe, guidelines on how things are going to be changing or maybe a timetable, how that will change and end in Alberta. Can you uh, share some specifics with us? Sure. We'll be making decisions and, and then releasing a plan to uh, lift almost all public health measures. We'll be releasing that plan uh, this week, early this week, and it will start with lifting the proof of vaccination program. Here we call it our restriction exemption program. We brought that in very reluctantly, Roy, back in September to avoid a total catastrophe in our hospitals. Alberta and Sask were hit hardest during the Delta wave because we were the least vaccinated provinces, and we had to get those vaccination rates up. This was a policy to... Um, limit transmission at uh, at uh, what we call discretionary and higher risk activities, largely things like casinos and nightclubs and NHL games, uh, did not affect uh, people's workplaces. And um, now we think it's done its job. It helped us to get our vaccine, vaccine rates way up from 75 to 90 percent first dose and from 68 to 86, coming 87 percent second dose. That's a big difference a change maker in terms of reducing pressure on hospitals. 
Um, but uh, we now see, Roy, that the with the duration, since most people got their second shot way back in the summer, there's been a wane, waning effect. And, of course, Omicron is more infectious. All this means that that a policy like that is less effective at preventing uh, transmission and infection. Don't get me wrong. Vaccines still hugely powerful and important uh, to um, prevent hospitalization and death, which is why we urge people to get the booster shot. But a, a, but a proof of vaccination program was always intended to be a temporary measure. I always said it would only last through no further than the first quarter of this year. We're now starting to see the pressures in our hospitals abate. We passed the Omicron peak a couple, about three weeks ago, and we think we can safely move forward. What level of support do you have for this initiative? I've been reading that some members of your, of your party and some members of your caucus are challenging this particular initiatives, and maybe some uh, some municipalities are saying, "Hey, we uh, we should have the right to make our own decisions on this." Not shouldn't yeah, come from Edmonton. Uh, unsurprisingly, there is a range of views on on the best way to deal with the challenge of COVID, and and uh, we've heard that from day one. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, the government is responsible for making really tough decisions. None of them are easy. None of them are good. And I just say to folks on b- both ends, both kind of p- polar opposites of the uh, opinion on on COVID policy, where I just say, folks, uh, we have been trying to pursue a sensible, balanced approach. I think the vast majority of people support reasonable interventions to prevent a catastrophe in the healthcare system. If we had not taken action last September, we would have been pulling life support on people, denying others care, canceling thousands more surgeries, backing up in the morgues, to be honest with you. I don't think, you know, I, I'm sure that over 90% of people would not accept a policy lead, that a letter writ policy leading to that outcome. At the same time, to those who are uh, stuck in a kind of permanent state of COVID fear, I say to them, we have to learn to live with this. And the example I give is the Spanish flu, 1918 to 1920, 50 million people died around the world. They brought in restrictions very similar to what we've had on and off in the past two years. But ultimately, they reached a level of of population immunity through vaccines and and natural infection that uh, made it endemic. And and we we have to move to that. I mean, even Dr. Tam is is making statements and of, of that nature that's what our plan will be based on it'll be database it'll be it'll be cautious but it will be, be moving us back uh, to getting our life back to normal to the greatest extent possible all right premier let me bring up a few issues that almost sound mundane today any other day they're headline issues but today they sound almost mundane but they're critical we have gasoline and diesel prices spiraling we have food becoming more expensive Some people are concerned about food security in this country. Carbon taxes are scheduled to increase. Inflation continues. Interest rates will rise. According to the Bank of Canada, while 45% of Canadians told MNP Canada they're not confident they'll be able to meet their financial obligations for 2022. What needs to be done on this front? And are you, what's your message to the federal government on these particular issues? Well, Inflation is out of control, and uh, this is uh, the federal government has not helped with its monetary and fiscal policies. Uh, basically, printing money and spending it uh, recklessly has has fueled this, this inflation. Um, and uh, and and things like this trucker uh, mandate for inter- for international truckers has just further limited uh, our access to supplies and driven up food inflation. So th- they've got to deal with this. And by the way. One of the underlying drivers of inflation right now, cost of living, is energy costs. Well, there's an ener- there was an energy price spike 
because the world has not been investing enough in exploration and production of hydrocarbon energy. This is the consequence of the kind of, of unrealistic, uh, unbalanced policies we've been getting from Ottawa and other governments in Europe and elsewhere that have created these supply constraints. I mean, gas, you think it's bad here, gas prices have gone up 500% in many parts of Europe. Yes. So the message I sent to uh, top American leaders in Washington last weekend was, why did, why did the, your government cancel Keystone XL? Why is the Michigan government trying to kill Line 5? We should be working together to have an abundant, affordable supply of energy because pushing people into energy poverty is, uh, is, a, is a terrible idea, and that's what's happening right now. Now, one more question for you, and that has to do with what went on with the federal Conservative Party, the Conservative Party of Canada, this week, and that is the voting out of Aaron O'Toole as the leader of the party, Candace Bergen as the interim leader, and uh, off we go. And uh, seeking again, we'll see a new leader federally for the party. What's your uh, sense of what's going on, and do you have a do you have a sense of what may happen? Do you have a favorite in this race? I know you're going to say no. <laughs> well, then I'll. You know it, and I'll say it. I um, there is no race yet. I, I, I look; these, these are all friends, and, and many of them former colleagues of mine. Uh, I respect them. My encouragement is for them to uh, move, just debate their future and choose a leader in a way that maintains the unity of the party and the movement, uh, because they should keep their eye on the ball and their political fire trained on the Liberal government, not on each other. Uh, and so unity and respect uh, is so important. They shouldn't do or say things that would be used against them in the future. It's keep keep their uh, fire trained on, on, on this federal government. And uh, I hope they'll come forward with a, a focus on economic recovery, on, on helping us uh, get back to normal uh, in, in the post-COVID era, uh, and be a big tent party that represents uh, a, a, a potential governing coalition for Canada. Let's talk about something else that's going on in this country, and uh, it has a lot to do with the politics of Canada and the leadership of this country, the official opposition. The Conservative Party of Canada removed its leader, Aaron O'Toole, over the last number of days. Candace Bergen is the interim leader. So what now, and what do the Conservatives need? Lisa Raitt is the former deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and cabinet minister in the Stephen Harper Conservative federal governments. Lisa, thanks for joining us. How are you? Really good, Roy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to uh, good to talk to you, Catherine Swift, member of the Conservative Party, now president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. Hi, Catherine, and congratulations. Oh, thank you, Roy, and hi, and hi, Lisa. <laughs> hi, Catherine. I just ask you both to give us your sense, please, of what's happening in this country today, uh, in the wake of what started last Saturday in Ottawa. What do you? What do you? What what impression do you have, Lisa? Let's start with you. You know what? I was out last night because we were finally allowed out to restaurants. I was out last night to my local with uh, some members of my former EDA. And it was just like you said, Roy, either they were going down to the protest today in Toronto or they were really ticked off that the protests were happening. There is no gray. And these were all the people who are in the Conservative Party together. They had very different points of view. And then we just agreed not to discuss that topic anymore and moved on. But it's interesting because people who you'd not normally think would be 
somebody to go to a protest. They're actually motivated to go out. And it's not about vaccine. They, they are triple vaxxed. They just want the mandates to go away. They're sick and tired of being shut down. And they think it's a they think it's an impediment on their freedom. And they're they're speaking out. Sure. Catherine. Yeah, well, certainly that's what I've heard as well. I've been having many debates with my children about this, <laughs> interestingly, over the last week or so. But I, in, in the bigger picture, first of all, everybody's fed up with the pandemic. So I, I think everybody's on a, you know, sort of on a razor's edge in terms of their emotions and their reactions to events. No, Nobody's on the fence these days. <laughs> but I think, too, this is very much a reflection of the incredibly divisive leadership we have seen from the Trudeau government. I mean, they have, right from the get-go, uh, sought to divide Canadians, everything, you know, an issue was either black or it was white. And if you weren't on their side, you were a racist, misogynist, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of divisiveness, first of all, most logical, intelligent people, which I believe most of us are, uh, know that neither extreme is probably the viewpoint most people have. Most people are somewhere in the middle on a lot of these issues. But, uh, uh, you know, stoking the divisiveness, some of it's been regional, as we know, because a lot of these truckers, not all, of course, but a lot of them did come from the West and they had lots of legitimate grievances with this government. But I think, uh, I think sadly, Trudeau is reaping what he has sowed. And, and this uh, protest, unfortunately, and it's, it's regrettable that a few nut bars have, have um, you know, gone and flown Confederate flags, but there's always a few of those in any protest, no matter what it is. Um, but I think they've tapped into a, a legitimate issue for starters, which okay. is the vaccine mandate on truckers. Why was that imposed after two year, virtually two years when everything was just fine with truckers? Yeah, I, Catherine, I, I, I have really to wonder, I have this to... is my paranoid brain speaking, yeah. if, if this was another deliberate <laughs> divisive move by the Trudeau government. These guys have been bringing us our food, everything we need to survive for the past couple of years. Yeah. Suddenly, at the 11th hour, we need to slap a, a mandate on them when we know 90% of them are vaccinated and they're sitting by themselves in their cabs all day. So, you know, I love you dearly, but I have to. I love you dearly, but I have to stop you. Sadly, Catherine, I have to stop you. Catherine, I have to stop you just because of the clock. I have to get something in here on the Conservative Party and the changes that have taken place at the top. But uh, I'm hearing the point of view that you've expressed over and over. And yes, they were heroes. And suddenly they're zeros. And these are the truckers who drove across the border at the time there was no vaccine and everybody respected them and appreciated what they were doing. Lisa, tell us, please, what happened inside the Conservative Party over the last week? I know it's been brewing for some time, but many Canadians are startled at how quickly Aaron O'Toole will appear to disappear. Well, that just shows you that uh, the Conservatives were very good at keeping their grievances inside the caucus room, and they weren't out talking to the press all the time. And when they moved on it, it became a surprise to folks. But really, if you were on the inside, I'm, I understand that it wasn't much of a surprise that this had been brewing since early December, that people were increasingly losing their confidence in Aaron as a leader. And as a result, they decided to take action last Monday. And once they started... Um, they just it took off from there and they got their vote right away and they had an over, they had overwhelming support my understanding roy is that aaron's um aaron's support actually eroded uh as this went on that even though he tried to come out to bargain and and position the narrative it, everything it didn't work it just simply didn't work and it got worse for him 
Yeah, it just seemed to be coming. Uh, as, as I watched what was going on, it just seemed the inevitable was, was happening, but it happened quickly during the week. As you said, it kept, was kept under wraps mm-hmm. as far as any public uh, exposure was concerned. Now, what now? Where, where, what does the Conservative Party need to do in order to position itself as a party with relevance to win the next election? It all starts at the leadership level, does it not? It does, um, but it starts with the interim leader. And what the interim leader needs to do is Candace Bergen, who, full disclosure, is a very good friend of mine. She's going to have to calm the waters, calm all the grassroots across the country, uh, make sure that fundraisers are going to have the tools that they need, that the fundraising comes back up again, and that her MPs feel like they're being heard and keep the caucus together that way. The leadership race, of course, does have the possibility of of dividing MPs, but that normally happens in a leadership race anyway, and and people don't take offense to one another. We've been through so many leadership races in the last five years, they're used to it, and we'll see where people line up on sides. But I understood, Roy, that Pierre Polyev was going to be announcing fairly soon that he was going to seek the leadership. So I would say watch for that. Yeah, and and he, I would think, as far as many Canadians are concerned, has the, uh, as the, the persona and certainly has the... Um, uh, the response nationally to to uh, take a lead position. Uh, can you give us a bit of a scoop? Will you run? Oh no, no, I'm not running. No. Okay. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> More likely to have Catherine <laughs> okay. Swift run than have me run. <laughs> okay, we've been trying to persuade nope, Catherine to run for a long time. <laughs> Catherine, what does the party have to do? You joined the party a while back. What does it have to do to become relevant with the Canadian voters, particularly at a time when we still don't have seventy percent of the electorate voting? Well, I think I think one of Aaron's challenges, and this is something that has to change going forward. And I like Aaron a great deal as a person. He's a very decent, fundamentally, you know, intelligent, competent human being. And it's regrettable, I think, that he really. First of all, we know he flip flopped on issues, so that's something not to do. But also, I don't know that he really ever carved out effectively what the party stood for. And I think. Proactivity. I saw in the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of reaction on the part of conservatives. You know, they were in reactive mode far too often instead of marking out their turf and claiming it. And there's tons of it. I mean, fiscal conservatism is something that I think, frankly, the majority of Canadians are very much on side with. So I think that's one thing that the party has to, it is a natural, sort of a natural position for the party. They need to enhance that and tell people what that means. Good basic uh, values in terms of home ownership for average people. Government that isn't in your face all the time and isn't taxing you so heavily, you don't have money to have a decent standard of living for yourself. You know, these are the kind of issues that are natural conservative issues that, again, I believe resonate very much with Canadians. The whole social conservative thing, park it. Park it. Uh, it, it. It does not resonate with the majority of Canadians. It is a divisive thing within the party. And the thing is, though, you know, there's a lot of liberals that are social conservatives, too. And I think this is something that the, the liberals that are in that camp, they just don't talk about it. So it doesn't get to be the issue. Uh, uh, but I, I think for, for, the, for the conservative party, that social conservatism needs to take a back seat, realize okay. that they're not resonating. But there's a lot of fundamental good family uh, um, principles such All as right. you know the, the cost of living issues and so on that are a natural a natural place to get support. Lisa, last question for you: How quickly do you think we're going to see a leadership convention? How quickly will the leadership, the new leader of the Conservative Party, be uh, be, be known to Canadians? Yeah, it's it's um, 
so here's the strategy on that. There will be whoever thinks that they're a front runner or uh, have the ability to, to win decidedly will want to have a short time for campaign. And we'll want to make sure that it happens as quickly as possible, maybe wrap it up by May. But for other folks who need a little bit more time to get out there, sell memberships and, and increase their profile, they probably want the summer to go barbecue to barbecue. And because we know that at least in the summer, we seem to be able to have some freedom. And that would mean a September um, a September uh, convention. And, and the good part about all this is that we have time, right? There's not going to be a snap election called in 2022. So we will have the time to get this done. I certainly hope we see more than, I don't want to see a coronation. I want to see a battle of policy uh, at a, and a serious conversation because if everyone's going to criticize our party as dividing, I want everyone to see that we actually talk about things and we come to conclusions and we move on. Brian Flores, African-American, former Miami Dolphins head coach, also former New England Patriots assistant coach, where he won four Super Bowls with head coach Bill Belichick and quarterback Tom Brady. Brian Flores has launched a lawsuit against the National Football League. Here we are a week away from the Super Bowl, claiming racial discrimination in the hiring of NFL head coaches and that the league pays only lip service to the so-called Rooney Rule, which promotes diversity at all levels within the NFL. The suit names Bill Belichick and a Belichick text, which was sent to Brian Flores. Now, here's the story. Flores had applied after he was fired by Miami uh, for the job as head coach of the New York Giants and received a text from Belichick in which the Patriots coach congratulates Brian on getting the Giants' job. Now, the issue is that the Brian who got the job is Brian Dable, the former uh, Buffalo Bills offensive coordinator, a white coach, and not Brian Flores. Now, here's where it gets uh, testy. Brian Flores was to have dinner with the general manager of the Giants to talk about his candidacy for the Giants' head coaching job after Belichick's text made it clear the job had already gone. Today, Bowl. Now, Flores says he was being manipulated to make it appear that he, a black coach, was in the running for the Giants' job. Now, Belichick says he sent the text to the wrong Brian. And here is the National Football League facing this situation one week before Super Bowl 56. Dan Lust is a sports attorney in New York. He's also a professor at New York Law School. Dan, thank you very much for taking the time. What's your view of this lawsuit? What happened to Brian Flores? You know, Roy, you almost can't make it up, right? The story that you explained uh, is almost too crazy to be true, but, um, you know, it, it is. We've seen the text. So, um, you know, at, at a really high level, I think Brian Flores, his suit claiming racial discrimination um, does have some teeth to it, right, because there is a pure problem of diversity in the NFL. One NFL head coach is African-American, six out of 32 general managers, and zero NFL owners. So, um, you know, you can understand American football. Obviously, the demographics of football are a lot more uh, diverse than the front offices. So, Brian Flores isn't wrong about that. Um, but, uh, as uh, I think uh, these texts kind of allude to, it's a question as to whether or not he has a particular case. He definitely has a right, uh, he's, he's on the right track overall, but still remains to be seen if he's going to be able to prevail in his lawsuit. 
Yeah, so, but, but he, he really caught the NFL in the web of its own deceit, did he not? He did. Or well, it appears to be. to some extent. Yeah, because if he's applying for the job as head coach of the Giants, and the general manager schedules a dinner with him in order to discuss the job, meanwhile, Brian Flores has already received an email, erroneously, according to Bill Belichick, in which uh, Belichick reveals that the job has already gone to a, to a white head coach. So why have dinner with the black head coach or the, the candidate for head job when the job's already gone? That, gone. That's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's clear. It seems well, to be clear. That's, that's going to be Brian Flores' allegation. Um, and so on the other end of it, the Giants are going to say, who is Bill Belichick? Right? Bill Belichick is the head coach of the New England Patriots. He does not work for the Giants, and from a legal perspective, he does not speak for the Giants. Mm-hmm. Text messages seem to allude that Bill Belichick is hearing that Brian Dayball is you know, going to get the job. Um, it doesn't mean that Brian Dayball has accepted the job or, or anything like that. So the Giants, uh, their statement, I think, was um, I think was on point. It said that Brian Flores is in consideration for the job until the 11th hour. At that point, all they had was a Zoom interview with Brian Dayball, and they don't hire people based off Zoom interviews. They hadn't yet had an in-person interview. And I think maybe telling it all this, Roy, the Giants statement also indicates that two days after Brian Flores was fired as the Miami Dolphins head coach in early January, that the Giants owner called uh, Flores and said, we have an interest of you in the head coaching job. So it doesn't seem as if it's someone that was just, uh, put it this way, uh, you know, uh, had an interview to check a box, as is the Rooney rule in the NFL, requires you to have uh, interviews with minority head coaching candidates. That's the allegation of racism, that they were literally just checking a box. The Giants are saying, Ryan Flores is a fantastic coach. We were considering him until the 11th hour. So, you know, certainly you can see both sides of it. Yeah, I. Well, if I go back to the statistics that you mentioned about zero owners, six general managers, how many coaches? One head coaches. One, Mike Tomlin of the Pittsburgh Steelers, just one. Just one, just one head coach, black head, head coach, in a league where seventy percent of the players are black. Um, th- th- that's a pattern there, uh, Dan, or appears to be. Yeah, I think I think that's why Brian Flores is going to be able to get into court and conduct some discovery. You need to have a in the, in the you know United States. You have to have a colorable basis to bring your lawsuit. You don't need to obviously prove it on day one. And I think Brian Flores showing those numbers shows that there's some type of problem. Now, does he win his case? You know, with the text message? No, I think it's a fifty-fifty. But I think the numbers show that the NFL has done a very poor job. Have they done a poor job because of some business reason or some coincidences, or have they done a bad job because there's something more illicit going on? And I, and I think that's what's at the heart of this. They're going to be able to conduct discovery, take depositions of Bill Belichick, anyone that's connected to the story that's certainly on the table. Have there been any parallels or any uh, stories, uh, news stories or developments within the league that have been similar to this one? Um, you know, I, I think the obvious one that comes to mind is the Colin Kaepernick lawsuit. That's the uh, former 49ers yeah. quarterback uh, who is, um, you know, of mixed race. Uh, but it, he had a lawsuit that was essentially based on his kneeling, right? So it wasn't really an issue of race. But then again, there's a quarterback that's not – um, you know, not playing in the NFL because of something uh, had nothing to do with football, right? Because he was kneeling. So he sued the NFL on this allegation of collusion. Um, and the case was kind of about race, but then again, it wasn't because it was purely about a political demonstration. This case really cuts at its core. It's a case about race. Um, and also, Roy, we didn't mention, this is proposed as a class action lawsuit 
which will allow coaches from the past, uh, be it Marvin Lewis, head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, or Hugh Jackson, former coach of the Cleveland Browns, Jim Caldwell of the Indianapolis Colts, to potentially join this lawsuit and stand on the sidelines uh, with Brian Flores. So, you know, then again, it's different than Colin Kaepernick, which was one versus the league. Kurt Flood in baseball, you know, was one versus Major League Baseball. This has a chance to be, you know, tens, if not a hundred former coaches, general managers, applicants for those jobs versus the NFL. So from a volume standpoint, no, we really haven't seen something like this. Joining us from Montreal is conservative Senator Leo Housakos. Senator, thank you very much for the time. How are you? I'm well, Mr. Green. Thank you for having me on. It's great to talk to you. Can I just first of all get your thoughts on what's going on? In this country today, I understand there's a protest in Montreal as well. We just heard Amanda Conley and a young man from Hamilton, Matt, who's in Ottawa. What's your sense of what's happening? Well, what's happening right across this country uh, has been a, a slow but rap, but but a, but a buildup that we've seen now for a number of months. And, of course, it's, uh, it's culminated with the convoy uh, protest in Ottawa. But the truth of the matter is there's a sense of frustration right across this country. Uh, in terms of what our current government in Ottawa is doing. Mr. Trudeau has really stoked the flames of this, uh, of this frustration, and it's with uh, misguided policies, pinning one group of Canadians against the next. And, and I'm, I'm afraid, I'm very afraid, that this is just the beginning of more disruptions to come, because we have right now the state of affairs in Canada is growing inflation. We see unemployment now creeping up. We see uh, governments having told Canadians that if we vaccinate and fully vaccinate, that is gonna, we're going to ex- expedite getting back into some kind of normalcy, and clearly they're proving to be wrong. And furthermore, and Trudeau has to take full responsibility for this, consistent inconsistency we've had over the last two years in dealing with this COVID crisis. Uh, Let me ask you about the Conservative Party. It's been quite a week for the party. I think many Canadians were surprised that almost, it appeared sudden that uh, Aaron O'Toole was no longer the leader of the party, and he's been out quickly and and reluctantly. What do Canadians need to understand about what went on within the Conservative Party of Canada, which saw the departure of Mr. O'Toole in the way that it happened? Well, Mr. Green, you know, in democracy and in elections, uh, victory has many fathers and, and defeat is an orphan. Uh, unfortunately, in the last election, we won the plurality of votes uh, for a second election in a row. Unfortunately, though, we had a status quo, uh, and we, we've seen uh, the Trudeau government, uh, an intellectually and, and ethically bankrupt Trudeau government, get reelected. And um, it's unfortunate, but the truth of the matter, the buck always stops at the top. And we can blame Mr. O'Toole for some things, and we, he can take credit for others. But uh, the leader of the Conservative Party, unfortunately, bared the brunt um, of criticism from our party membership, our caucus, and, uh, and clearly the caucus came to the determination that we needed new leadership, a renewed leadership, and a new approach uh, for the good of the country and the good of the party. So I felt that Mr. O'Toole had become a little too thin-skinned. I criticized him on the air, and that was the end of uh, him appearing on this program. Even his media people don't bother to respond. As soon as I leveled a criticism, they went uh, they went dark on me. But I appreciate your being on. But there was also Mr. O'Toole uh, banning Senator Denise Batters, who you know well, a colleague of yours in the Senate, from the caucus because she asked for a leadership review early. Uh, the caucus, your Senate caucus, accepted her. That said to me, there's some real issues in that party. Well, 
there's no doubt. Like I said, after the the election defeat, uh, you have to come to terms with uh, with why and how and how you can go forward to make changes. Um, uh, there's no hiding the fact, and I'll be quite public about it. I was one of those voices that uh, suggested to to a leader at the time, O'Toole, to move up the leadership review after an electoral defeat. The party membership. Uh, deserve the right to speak uh, on the leadership of the party. Uh, Senator Batters, who is a good friend and a very respected conservative colleague, uh, she moved forward uh, as a member of the party, a petition which she had the right calling to move up uh, the convention. Uh, and in the end, she was vindicated because I think that was the overwhelming view of the majority in the party in terms of our membership. And in the end, the caucus came to the same conclusion that pushing back and uh, avoiding a review after an electoral defeat was just not in the best interest uh, of the party. And unfortunately, it led to, uh, or maybe fortunately, time will tell, it led to a call for, for leadership change. Yeah. By the way, I've always appreciated the fact that you're willing to speak and that you're straightforward, Senator. There's a lot of questions about the uh, the need for and the relevance of the Senate. I would say that you're a very relevant person within the government of this country. So I appreciate you. I appreciate that. And, and really, it's one of the privileges and benefits we have in the upper chamber because of our uh, tenure. Uh, we are free to, to say what we think. And I think it's imperative that politicians uh, in the Senate take advantage of that. And I think those in the House of Commons as well have to, I think, both conservatives and, and all other politicians have to uh, start recognizing that we need to start talking to our constituents, listening to stakeholders in this country, and stop governing using focus groups and polling uh, and taking decisions on political expediency. I, I think democracy is a fabulous tool. Yeah. And when we allow it to work, I think it, it works beautifully. But we have to start listening uh, to our constituents, and we should not be afraid uh, to have an open and frank debate about very difficult issues. And by the way, that's what's going on right now in the Conservative Caucus. Some people will see this division as, as an anathema. I actually embrace it. I think through open, frank uh, discussion and debate, you come to a consensus, and it's a healthy thing for democracy, and I think the Conservative Party in a few months will come out stronger for it. Well, you need to know what Canadians expect of you, and I'm sure the research is being done or has been done. Let me ask you this. I have two quick questions for you as we wrap up. What are your thoughts on the continuing COVID restrictions? We're hearing, you know, Premier Kennedy is going to be telling us that next week he's going to be talking about a timetable to end restrictions in, uh, in, in, in Alberta. Premier Mo has talked to us about restrictions in Saskatchewan. What's your thought on that? Look, uh, government has to be consistent, and the Conservative Party on this, we have been consistent. Uh, first of all, I want to highlight for your listeners that just about everybody in the Conservative House of Commons caucus and Senate caucus were vaccinated. We believe that vaccines is the best way in order to mitigate uh, dealing with this terrible disease. But by the same token, we believe in liberty, we believe in choice, and we believe in persuasion. And if the government can't persuade people to get vaccinated, you can't force them. We're not living in a democracy, and it's unfair that Prime Minister Trudeau is trying to create the us versus them um, uh, situation, even though the them happen to be 15% of individuals for a variety of reasons are vaccine hesitant. And okay. Mr. Mr. You know, the Prime Minister says we're all in this together. Well, we conservatives, we believe that we have to be all together in this. And you right. can't force people by taxing and browbeating them into getting vaccinated. That's not Senator- going to build immunity. I literally have 10 seconds. Tell me, do you have concern about violence 
at these rallies and protests today? Do you think it's going to be a, the predictions will be a self-fulfilling prophecy? My message to, to the protesters is the following. The Conservative Party has heard you. It's unfortunate that the Trudeau government refuses to hear you out and meet with you. But okay. allow democracy to work. Allow our institutions to go to work. Don't Senator, have... That's, that's my message today. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.